Please turn with you now in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 8. To Exodus chapter 8 and verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Let us pray. Lord, we are astonished at your sovereignty. Every word that you have spoken is perfectly true, proves to be true, even with the free actions and choices of men and women. Lord, we see that just as you have said, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts. We know that naturally speaking, we are blind to the word of God. We know that naturally speaking, our hearts desire to twist and to turn away from every little bit of truth that we receive. And even as your people, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we know, Lord, that there are remnants of this old man in us. These remnants are working against us receiving this sermon. Well, Heavenly Father, we pray that in the power of your almighty Holy Spirit, that we might see everything that is to be seen here And, Lord, that we might truly experience and see the reality that this is the finger of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to the middle portion of Exodus chapter 8, which is the third of the great plagues of Egypt. Now, the context, quite straightforwardly, is following on from the second plague. Remember the frogs. But sadly, in Exodus 8, verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, the Lord is good, and and Moses interceded on behalf of Pharaoh, and the Lord heeded Moses in his matter. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And so the remainder of the chapter contains now the third plague, which is lice, and after that the fourth plague, flies. Now, I'm sure you know that as we continue along the plagues, we also continue along the trajectory, the spectrum from just what is pervasive to that which is invasive, from that which is merely inconvenient to irritating and finally to destructive and to killing. Now, the frogs in the second plague were were there everywhere, but they didn't bite. Now, the lice, they bit, but they didn't destroy anything. By the time you get to the flies, now it's starting to ruin the land of Egypt. But in all of our 
consideration of these things, of course, we are not looking at mere trajectories and, and the spectrum of these things. We're not looking at curiosities because it will do us little good. I do hope, in fact, particularly children, that you memorize all the ten plagues of Egypt, that you remember each one of them and the significance of them. But we don't want to look at these things merely as curiosities, but rather for the particular lesson in each one of these things. We, the word of God is, is all of it, every bit of it, useful. And there are the distinctive lessons in each one of them that we're trying to bring out. And the lesson I want to focus on tonight is the very testimony of the magicians, these wicked, pagan, occult magicians. In verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Now you probably know by now what the game was that Pharaoh was attempting to play. As Moses came with these miracles from God to demonstrate to to Pharaoh that he was the authorized spokesman, that he was the prophet of God who spoke in the name of God and that these things were true and right, that Pharaoh would fight back by bringing his magicians. And if he could get the magicians to replicate that which, which... Uh, Moses and Aaron had done, then he thought he was justified in disregarding and ignoring what Moses had said. So, thus far, the magicians have been able to replicate these things, at least to some extent. And we see uh, they they began rather well with the snakes, but even there, the, the snake of Aaron ate the other snakes. So we see the supremacy of God even in that. We see also a degree in which they were able to turn water into blood. And then with the frogs, although there's frogs covering the entire land of Egypt, they are able to make some number of frogs to come up from the water. And therefore, Pharaoh is able to grasp onto this little thread, this little possibility that maybe he didn't have to listen to Moses and Aaron even, uh, even still. But in this case, now, they are not able to re- replicate this at all. They try and they fail to turn dust into lice. And they say, rather, they come to this simple and obvious conclusion that this is the finger of God. Now, we can only commend them for their straightforward honesty and intellectual integrity and at least admission of their abject failure to do so. And they were right in doing their jobs. Pharaoh, you've asked us to replicate it, but we're going to tell you something. This is the finger of God. Now, what is this king going to do with the evidence? What is he going to do with his testimony that his own magicians have brought? This is not the, the, uh, the people of Goshen. This is not the Israelites coming to him and saying, Look, I think this is the finger of God. This is his own court magicians under his pay that he's recruited telling him this. What is he going to do with it? Well, unfortunately, he's going to do exactly what he's done thus far with it. He's going to rebel against it. He's going to disregard it. He's going to harden his heart. And let me say, by the way, it was not because of a lack of evidence that he hardened his heart. It wasn't because of a lack of evidence. It was actually in the presence of the truth that was the occasion of his hardening his heart. Do you understand? Well, I'll say more about that later, but just chew on that as we begin this sermon, that it was not the lack of evidence that led him to harden his heart, but precisely in the face of this irrefutable testimony was the occasion for him to harden his heart. Well, 
This is the finger of God is the title and the subject of our sermon tonight. And there are these three points. Harmless dust to biting lice. Harmless dust to biting lice. Second, the almighty finger of God. And thirdly, the twisted heart of Pharaoh. Our first point is harmless dust to biting lice. Again in verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. An amazing thing. Previously, we have water, which was considered to be, of course, it is a life-giving agent. It's a source of of life for everywhere, but particularly the source of both life and power in the land and and life of Egypt. And now there is dust, just the dust of the ground. It's in itself fairly innocuous. It's harmless dust. It's never done anybody in that sense much harm. But one thing it's good at, one thing it does on its own, even if it does not do any particular harm, is it certainly gets everywhere. That's, that's a, a reality of dust. Now, we have our own form of dust, don't we, in this, this country, and we have to dust our shelves and the rest of it, but far, far more so in the Middle East. Many of you have been to that part of the world, and you know that dust gets absolutely everywhere. Uh, I remember a particularly poignant example of that, that... Um, At the REF, we we brought our vehicles there and had uh, changed them to desert camouflage and dust got everywhere. We brought them back and we painted them back to a sort of normal garrison-type cover, completely painted them inside and out. And a year and a half later, they were still seeping dust every time you got into them because that's just how pervasive dust is. And so, yes, it's small and insignificant, but actually just because it's so small and insignificant, seemingly, That's exactly what allows it to go absolutely everywhere. And you see then just how pervasive and invasive this particular uh, uh, plague is going to be. Now imagine then this dust, which was absolutely everywhere in Egypt as it was, turning into lice, chewing lice, sucking lice. You know... I should say, by the way, that in most cases, most species of lice, they are specific to a single species of animal or bird. So imagine that. In this fallen world, there is, yes, in this cursed world, there are species of lice that are fitted to just about every major species of mammal and of bird, and most certainly the case for human beings. Not just one, not two, but actually three different kinds of lice are specific to human beings, one for the head, one for the body, and one for the lower body, and that is the reality of the cursed world we live in. Now, as this happens then, as it comes on both man, notice on both man and beast, right? So given what I just said about every type of animal having virtually its own species of lice, what is the implication? It seems to me pretty clear that God created lice from this dust that was suited both to man and all the three kinds that I mentioned here, here, and here, and also for every kind of animal in Egypt. Now, 
If that seems unlikely, I'm not sure why. The hard thing is, of course, creating life from non-life. But for whatever reason, we, we, have to, we sometimes think that doing the more specific and, and detailed thing is a thing that seems so difficult. Well, let me just say that the really difficult and, and, and completely impossible thing is creating life from non-life because only God can do that. I think that's what proved this, this, the changing factor for the magicians. Look, they could change some water into something that looked a little different. They could summon forth frogs, out, living frogs, out of the Nile to, be, to, pick, to go into the land. They could do that much, but they could not turn inanimate, dead dust into lice. And let me say that no one can. Again, in a hundred years of Frankensteinian experiments, biologists, evolutionary biologists have been trying to do precisely that. And they've been throwing lots of money at it. And they've been throwing lots of electricity at it. And they've been throwing lots of chemicals at it. And they've been throwing all kinds of x-rays and ultraviolet light at it. And they still haven't made a single bit of dust into one living cell ever. Never have they done it. you know why? Because it's the finger of God alone that can turn something that is inanimate into something that is living. And that is the way it is, and that is the way it will always be. And these, whether it's the magicians back then or whether it's the evolutionary scientists now, if they have any integrity to them, they will say when they encounter something that is living, when they encounter the creation of life from non-life, they say this is the finger of God. Well, anyhow, as I say, but for some reason we, we find it a little bit unlikely, the rest of it. For instance, we can, we can sometimes accept the idea of God creating stars, but then we say, well, surely he could also have created the light to go along with it. Brothers and sisters, the, the almighty God who is able to create lice is able to create different kinds of species fitted to do exactly the work that he's called them to do. Right? The, if, if they brought forth the sort of cow lice, they're not going to do much harm to, to people because the people lice are, are fitted in, indeed to be a plague upon people in a way that they can't easily get rid of, in a way that is perfectly suited to their kind of skin and their kind of blood and, and all the rest of these things. And likewise, the God who creates one part, the most important part, is able to create also in all of its perfect detail in order to display his great glory. Well, as I say, these, they were, they were sent upon both man and beast, all perfectly suited then to do this work of irritating and bringing pain and discomfort upon all the people and all the animals in Egypt. This harmless dust was turned to biting lice, should say one thing before we go. You remember, of course, that God created man out of the dust of the earth. This is a picture, indeed, of his creative power. He can do it for the good end of creating mankind, and he can do it for the work of judgment in creating lice upon mankind. But secondly, we see then the almighty finger of God, more particularly. In verse 18, now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice but they could not. So there was lice on man and beast. Now, as I say, they could perhaps do something like calling frogs, living frogs from the river. They could maybe change some water into blood or something that looked like it, but they could not change inanimate dust into living creatures like lice. 
And again, to their credit, the magicians come to Pharaoh and say, this is the finger of God. Now, that's very, very important and specific language here, that idea of the finger of God. It points to the most direct and immediate activity of God. Now, look, everything that ever happens in this universe is due to the sovereign workings and determination of God. As has been said more than once, there is not a single atom, a single subatomic particle anywhere in this world that moves in any direction whatsoever, has any property apart from God's determination of it. And that is certainly the case with everything that happens. But when you hear this phrase, the finger of God, it's a little bit more direct. It's a little bit more immediate, pointing to immediate activity of God. And in fact, on only two other occasions, really, is our attention drawn in this way to the finger of God. One is in the giving of the law. You know, in Deuteronomy 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, when I went up into the mountain, this is Moses speaking, who is indeed the, the human author of these books, When I went into the mountain to receive the tablet of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I I neither ate bread nor drank water. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. Think about that. Written with the finger of God. Of God. No error to be found. Impossible. Exactly what God intended to convey was to be found on those tablets of stone, nothing more, nothing less, as with entirely the Word of God. Just because He did not write this particular Bible with His finger does not mean that this is any less trustworthy. But let me say that the idea that God in particular wrote, he did not write all of scripture with his finger, although he, he, he certainly inspired it through his all-powerful Holy Spirit. The idea of him writing down the moral law and the Ten Commandments, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so dreadful, the idea of setting aside the Lord's Day. As you know, unfortunately, there are those in the church today, in the contemporary evangelical church, who say, well, you know, I think that this... This idea of the Sabbath day of the fourth commandment is passé. I think it's something that's gone away and and we don't have to worry about it anymore. The idea, the idea of of a tablet of stone, the permanence of stone, of of something having been written, it's not like he used ink on it. Of course, in his his finger, he he acted directly upon this stone for for its uh, impermanence. Of the finger, the sinless, holy finger of God writing these things, and then sinful, wicked, foolish man coming with his hands, his greasy hands, and scratching out one of the commandments. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Brothers and sisters, we do not need to go down that road. But the point is that this is the language when God wants particularly to make a point that the message is coming directly from him. You cannot possibly mistake it for anything else. Please do not make any mistake. This is the finger of God doing and acting and speaking in these ways. We have it there in the giving of the law. And we have it again in Luke. You may remember that in Luke chapter 11. Not so long ago in the morning series, Luke 11 verse 15. Remember this showdown with the Pharisees and religious leaders. There's been more than one of those showdowns. 
He's, been, he's casting out these demons, and what we should be seeing from it is that these miracles are proving without a shadow of doubt that the Lord Jesus is precisely who he says he is. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven, as if they haven't seen one. They keep acting like they've not already seen a sign from heaven. But he, knowing the thought, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Have I cast out demons by Beelzebub? By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be their judges. But listen, verse 20 But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Because that is precisely what he was doing. He was the stronger man who came with the power of God. And he was, to these demoniacs, he was coming with the finger of God and the direct and immediate activity of God dealing with him and casting out those who would otherwise never leave these victims, these possessions of theirs, these souls of people. And he's casting them out by the finger of God. And they, in their wickedness, they, in their rebellion, and their foolishness, and their hard-heartedness, and their blindness, refuse to see it. And they twist the very thing that was fitted to be a demonstration of the immediate and direct activity and testimony of the living God. They twist that very thing into the very opposite and say, see, he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. What could be more perverse? What could be more wicked than that? The almighty finger of God has been revealed. There is irrefutable testimony. And yet people in their own wickedness and twisted hearts refuse to see it for what it is. This was the finger of God, but they don't see it. And that is precisely what we see here in our third point, the twisted heart of Pharaoh. But finger, but, and this is verse 9, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Now, notice that this did not happen as with last time when there was a remission, because that's, that's pretty much what happened. You remember that in the, the previous situation of the frogs, uh, it's, it's done some work on Pharaoh's heart. In verse 8, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. He is, in a, he is for a moment at least seeming to repent. And so they, he does this, he intercedes on their behalf, the Lord listens to Moses, and, takes, and the Lord takes away all the frogs. The Lord did, verse 13, according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out in the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields, they gathered them together in heaps and landstein. So there was a, a, a remission. There was a respite of this. God in his goodness took away the the furnace of the fire that was working on Pharaoh in these trials and these plagues. It was taken away for a moment. And then, verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them. But the situation here in the third plague is a little bit different. We have no evidence whatsoever of any elapse of time. We have no evidence whatsoever of any relief or respite whatsoever. 
rather in the very presence of the lice that was still on everyone, including himself. And particularly in the very presence of the testimony of the magicians who said, This, my king, is the finger of God. That is the context for him saying, for his heart growing hard, for him refusing to heed them just as the Lord had said. It was not a lack of evidence, you see. Actually, it was in precisely in the, in the presence of this irrefutable evidence that Pharaoh is hardening his heart against the Lord. Now, I mentioned Romans chapter 1 this morning, but let me actually read it to you this evening so we can be very clear about the way this works, because it's crucial. It helps us to understand everything else that goes on in our world. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it reads this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let me just say there, Romans chapter 1 is about the revelation of, of the wrath of God here in this world. It is not about the eternal wrath. If you want to learn about that, you just turn the page to Romans chapter 2. And it speaks about the wrath that happens in the next world. But as for the wrath of God, which is prefigured, which is foreshadowed in this world, this is how God works in this world. This is what Romans 1 is about. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Not those who had no clue whatsoever, had no knowledge of God at all, whether in their hearts whether in creation, whether in revelation, they had absolutely no idea. And a mean-spirited God is, is bringing down his wrath upon those who had no clue. No. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They have truth. They're suppressing it. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has shown it to them. There is something intrinsic in man. There's a way that God has created man, that he knows that there is a God. Deep down, there really are no atheists. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He tries to say that. But deep down, even he has irrefutable evidence in his own soul that there is a God. Everyone knows it. Because God has created this seed of the divine, this, this reminder of the reality of God in their hearts. For God has shown it to them. And beyond that, in verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse, because in creation, God created this universe so that it speaks of him. Right? This, this, this is the book of creation. As we look around in this world, it bears irrefutable evidence. It bears mute testimony to the reality that God exists. That he, he exists, first of all, but also that he is all-powerful. Also that he is all-wise. And yes, even that he is good. These things are to be seen in creation. You see then the wickedness of those who will look at creation then to find a reason to reject God. But unfortunately, that's par for the course. That's exactly what happens. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse, because although they knew God, don't forget, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their, their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. 
and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore, so because God in his, and man in his foolishness and wickedness are rebelling against the light that he has, the light in his own heart, the light in nature, rebelling against that, refusing to see it, refusing to receive it, God gives them over. God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. That's the situation, my friends. The situation is not about a lack of evidence. It is rather about twisted hearts, twisted sinful hearts that know the truth, but whatever truth that they have, they twist and they turn and they distort in order that they might suppress it and have some excuse even in their own minds for why they should not submit, why they should not bow the knee to the living God. And my friends, that is why the heart is always the issue. In a heart like this prideful and wicked king, the purest and clearest truth is, is distorted and rejected and used rather to justify the very opposite of what it was intended to do. You say, this makes no sense. This man has these advisors in his court that he has brought in order to do some good to him. They are members of this court and previously they have affirmed him in these things as they've been able to change the, the water into blood to some extent, as they've been able to summon forth the frogs, as they've been able to turn their rods into to snakes in some way. They have been with him and for him in these things and now they say, Pharaoh, I hate to say it, but this is a finger of God. What kind of heart takes that evidence and that testimony and, and turns it into the exact opposite and says, this is why I'm hardening my heart? A twisted heart, a sinful, unregenerate, sinful heart, the heart that every single unregenerate man, woman, and child has, apart from the work of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is the finger of God, whether they would see it or whether they would not. The finger of God, and the application that we make of these things first of all, is that we pray that God would soften hearts and open eyes. You know, sometimes we are all tempted to give up praying for our loved ones, tempted to give up praying for our neighbors. In times past, perhaps we have labored in prayer for them. In times past, we have sought to invite them to Christianity Explored or to services or anything along those lines or sought to to give them a tract or sought to witness to them and they have not responded in the slightest and maybe we begin to give up. Well, let us have some specific focus for our prayers, shall we? Maybe just even the remainder of the summer, maybe we can have a specific focus for as we think about our loved ones in particular that God would soften these hard hearts. And let me read to you from our confession, our wonderful confession, which is so useful, so concise, so, so able to convey the contents of Scripture. Let me read to you Westminster Confession 5.6. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, 
but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had, and exposes them to such objects of their corruption as makes occasions of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptation of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. So even in the context of explaining how God deals sometimes with wicked men like Pharaoh, we're reminded of the good news that God sometimes uses means to soften others. And we are thankful that this is true. We are thankful, by the way, even by the end of the story of Exodus, that there were those who trembled at the word of God. They'd seen enough. And they had not hardened their hearts along Pharaoh's. In fact, God had used it to soften their hearts. Well, we pray that God would do that. You know, sometimes we say that, that because, you know, this person had some bad thing happen to them, and that's why they don't go to church anymore. That's why they've turned against God. You know what, my friends? Very often this is used in the hands of God to soften hearts as well. And that's what we've got to pray. That God would use whatever providences, whatever events, now or in the past or in the future, to soften the hearts of those whom we love. And likewise, that he would open their blind eyes. You say, I speak to them. I try to give them the gospel. They don't see it. it. It's almost as if they're blind. And you know what? They are blind. That's exactly the way that the Lord, the word of God describes. And they're blind, like Saul of Tarsus. And you remember what happened to him. Something like scales fell from his eyes and all of a sudden he could see that which he had never seen before. The beauty and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom he previously persecuted, the one whom he previously sought to destroy. He saw these things and he believed. And he went to his death testifying to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and the risen Jesus. We should pray that God would soften the hearts and open the eyes of those whom we love. Secondly, we should be thankful for the finger of God for salvation. Look, the finger of God, it can turn this dust into lice, this innocent dust into something that is biting and irritating and far worse is to come in God's great judgments upon Egypt. Far worse is to come. But let me say that he can do other things with his finger. Let me carry on in in Luke chapter 11. As I mentioned, that great, wonderful passage dealing with the finger of God. It says in verse 20, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Is that a judgment? Yes, in some sense, yes. It's a warning of judgment. But listen, he goes on to explain this. Verse 21, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes all from, from his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. He's saying, my friends, these people whom I've rescued, they were Satan's spoils. They were trapped. They were, they were captive to the wicked devil, the, the, the Satan, the enemy of God. And I have come. And you couldn't do it because you're not strong enough. But I'm the stronger man and I can bind Satan and that's exactly what I've done here. I've bound him so I can free this poor man that was captive to him. And you know what that means? It means that he is willing and able to do that for others as well. Now not everyone is demon possessed in the sort of way that that man was. 
But every man, every woman, every child, apart from those who are regenerate, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are captive to Satan in their hearts. And isn't it good news that this almighty finger of God, able to turn all the dust in Egypt into lice, indeed soon enough to bring upon the flies and all the rest of these things, that almighty finger of God is able to deal with Satan. And he is able to beat him up and to bind him and to take his stuff and mainly to free the souls of men and women, to bring them into salvation. We need such a Savior. We have such a Savior. He can and does bind this strong man. He can rescue the captives. He can rescue those who are without hope and without God in the world, as Ephesians 2 tells us. Isn't that a wonderful Savior? Isn't that the sort of Savior we can believe in and should believe in? There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we trust in him, then we are saved because we have come to that strong tower. We have come to the stronger man by through the power and the finger of God he is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him. And thirdly and finally, I hope that we take great assurance from these things. You know, it is one thing when your friends and allies bear you testimony and say, yep, that's, that's, he's, he's the real deal. It's quite another when your enemies, when the paid agents of your enemies, your great enemy, the one who actually typifies Satan, says, this is the finger of God. You know, I don't know which, which, one, which testimony means more to me, which gives me greater assurance in my heart. When the Lord Jesus Christ bears testimony and says, by the way, this is the finger of God. Or when the enemies, despite against all their, uh, against their will, as it were, has to bear testimony to the same truth. That this is the finger of God. Even this morning as we saw these supposedly very highly intelligent, well-educated, well-placed, but enemies of God nonetheless, these Sadducees and Pharisees, all they could say is, I don't know where this John the Baptist, whether it was from heaven or from earth, we don't dare say because we know what's going to happen in this. You know what that does for me? It brings me greater assurance. This is true. It's really true. And you know what? There is not any one of us who is so strong in our faith that there will not be some moment in which Satan and the world and even our flesh will seek to diminish our faith in the word of God. I want you to know that it is testified by everyone, everything imaginable. The whole creation, those little lies, say every one of them bore testimony to the reality of the living God. And yes, those pagan occult magicians, who every fiber of their being stood against the living God, had to admit this was a finger of God. There was mute testimony born to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, even by the enemies of God as they sought some sort of device to cover a cover story, to deal with the reality that he was risen, and no one could deny that fact. All throughout all of Scripture and all of history, we find validation and evidence for anyone who has of any mind whatsoever to receive it, that this is the truth of God, and we should believe it. We have an absolutely faithful testimony that, the, that all these things are true and we should take it to the bank of our faith, ready for a time of trial. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be reminded of the finger of God. Lord, truly, your miracles bear testimony, bear witness of the truth. For those of your people, it is great assurance and confirmation. Those in rebellion will twist these things, even to their further destruction. But Lord, you are just. It could never be said that Pharaoh was judged and destroyed, not knowing a single thing about the Lord God of Israel. Rather, Heavenly Father, on multiple occasions, the truth of God was brought home to him, and he shook his fist at it nonetheless. Indeed, in this instance, it was not in, in the absence of anything. It was not because the magicians had fully replicated what was done, and he had some shred of a reason to reject it. It was not even in the respite of these things, and he had, that he had grown dull in his understanding and forgotten them. But rather, even in the face of this irrefutable testimony, he rebelled and twisted these things in his twisted, rebellious heart. Well, Heavenly Father, what do we pray in the light of these things? We pray that you would soften hearts. We know pharaohs around us, and we intercede like Moses on their behalf. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would soften the hard hearts of our neighbors and our friends, and particularly our relatives. And that you would open the eyes of the blind, even as you did to this wicked persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, who became the great Apostle Paul. We pray, Lord, that you do this great work of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts and open the eyes that they might see truly this is the finger of God and that they would bow the knee and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to their salvation. We pray all this for the glory of God and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.